Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And our guest this week is returning to the show for a second time, and we're thrilled that she decided to take another plunge. She's an actress, comedian, voice actor, a comedy historian and an Emmy-nominated comedy writer, a cast member of the original Saturday Night Live. I think I've heard of that particular program. A founding member of the legendary Groundlings comedy group and theater, and we're happy to report a devoted listener of this very podcast. You know her work from popular TV shows like St. Elsewhere, Third Rock from the Sun, Friends, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Beavis and Butthead, American Dad and Bob's Burgers, to name a few. And in feature films like Tunnel Vision, Stardust Memories, Holy Moses, American Hot Wax, Perfect, Invaders from Mars, Coneheads, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and a little flick called Problem Child 2. Again, I think I've seen that one. (laughs) She's also done outstanding voice work on numerous television shows, And in movies, Finding Nemo, Shrek 2, Wall-E, Toy Story 3, Inside Out, Wreck-It Ralph, Minions, and others. Her new memoir is a terrific one. It's called May You Live in Interesting Times and includes hilarious anecdotes about her childhood her years on SNL, and her long and strange journey through show business. Frank and I are pleased to welcome back to the show one of our favorite funny people 
as well as a fellow monster kid. Uh, and a woman who once auditioned for a movie by sitting on Robert De Niro's lap, stroking his hair, and singing to him. Our pal, Lorraine Newman. Hey. Hi, everybody. Lorraine. Hey. How Oops. are you? I'm great, guys. Absolutely great. Sweating my ass off in my closet talking to you. She's in a closet. We should point out to our listeners. <laughs> well, when, when are you yeah. finally going to come out? <laughs> <laughs> don't go there, honey. Just don't. You're in the, cl- I, I you're in the closet. I always suspected audio. that with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have no idea. Lorraine is sitting in a closet for proper audio, for best audio. You know, and we, we have to put our faith in her because she's a professional voice actor. Yes, and uh, I've had to learn all sorts of methods of recording, compressing a file, and delivering it on several yes. platforms. Isn't that a good story? Yes. Well, <laughs> since most of our guests can't do that, we're, we're greatly relieved that you can actually record on your own and deliver on your own. Do you oh, want most... to tell Gilbert the De Niro story before we, uh, before oh, well, we move away um... from it? Because it's in the memoir well, and it's very funny. To kind of backtrack, um, when I was around 19, my boyfriend was an artist and he lived very close to the Tropicana Motel, which was really infamous. It was the scene of many heroin overdoses and uh, the setting for Andy Warhol's movie Trash. And right below it was Duke's. It was a coffee shop. So it was known as Duke's at the Tropicana. And um, it was really like the Hollywood canteen. We would... It was um, family-style seating, so you could be sitting across from Iggy Pop or next to Tom Waits. And one of the friends that we made uh, at these breakfasts was Martin Scorsese. And he was just, like, doing the finishing touches on Mean Streets. He invited us all to see a rough cut, but he hadn't put the music on it yet. So spool forward two years later... This was why it was so important to me that um, I do a good job when I audition for King of Comedy. And I was told I'd be auditioning with Jerry Lewis. But in fact, Jetty wasn't there. It was Robert De Niro. And, you know, I was so unprepared in the sense that I, you know, I worked on it. But I knew that I wasn't the kind of actress that was uninhibited enough to be seen with their clothes off, to be psychotic to be, you know, um, as I did in the audition, sitting on De Niro's lap, stroking his face and hair and singing to him (laughs) while he's hating me. I just, I didn't have the balls or the chops for that, which, you know, Gilbert, it's, it's, that's so distracting during an audition, knowing that you can't do it. The part that Sandra Bernhardt would obviously go on to get, the Masha. Who was great in, yes. Yeah, she was great. Well, you hate auditioning and Gilbert hates auditioning. Yeah, I I got better at yeah. auditioning over the years. In the beginning, it was a complete nightmare, and then after a while, you realize, all right, my chance of getting this is one in a trillion. Mm-hmm. I might as well try to have fun with it. That's a great attitude, I must say. I just uh, have like a an out of body experience. And after all these years of auditioning, I'm still in the corner of the room on the ceiling watching myself. And uh, I just, I can't focus because of the fear. So, um, and some actors said 
he gives his best performances on the drive home. Oh, yeah. And you think of what you could have done. That's painful. <laughs> yeah, you're going, oh, God, why was I doing it that way? Yeah, that's, that's uh, well, life's too short for that. <laughs> I learned a, a lot of things about you, uh, Lorraine, listening to the memoir. I, I got the, uh, the audible version and listened to uh, almost all nine hours of it. I think I fell about 20 minutes short. But, uh, Gilbert, did you know that Lorraine's father was a Jewish cowboy? I, this sounds like the beginning of a bit. <laughs> well, my, I'm my trying f- to think of the punchline. <laughs> I haven't got one, but <clears throat> yeah, they were. My dad was born in Los Angeles, but raised in Arizona, and they were cattle merchants. So my dad had his own horse, and he took part in you know cattle drives. One when they were in Los Angeles, did a cattle drive to Calabasas. If you can imagine that. And, um, but yeah, he would still eat at the dinner table like he had overalls on with his thumb hooked into the, the strap, you know, that's how he he would, he would eat. And I think in the book, I talk about the fact that my dad, um, actually said ornery varmint. I brought a cat into the house. I didn't know that he (laughs) did not like cats, like did not like cats and he really, he was furious, and he said, you get that ornery varmint out of here. And I, I was a teenager. I remember thinking, Dad, um, we're, we're Jews. How did you? Well, okay. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds like something that a cartoon character would say. Yeah, exactly. Possibly, you know, possibly the, Sam. the only Jewish man to ever lead a cattle drive, possibly. Yeah, and your, I, I and don't your grandfather think that's was true. A sh- <laughs> Your grandfather was a sheriff? Yeah, he I love was that. a sheriff in a small too. town. It was I a, love that. a mining town that uh, only now exists as a tourist attraction. It was um, a silver mining town called Chloride. It was on an Indian reservation. Very, very small town. See, now this gets me to that question. I don't know if anyone could answer it. How many Jews were there in the Old West? Well, if you watch Deadwood, there was at least one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> be surprised how many families go way back. Um, do you remember the singer Carla Bonoff? Yeah. She, yeah, she's, I remember her. She's fifth generation Californian. So, you know, and the, if you think about what the industry was at the time, like five generations back, it was nothing but you know, farming and mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So you, you get a lot of L.A. history yeah. listening to your book, too. That's what's so one of the things I was telling you on the phone that's so fascinating about it. It's not only your history. It's the history of you. You learn about Beverly Hills High School. Gilbert, uh, Lorraine went to school that 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 swimming pool that's under the basketball court. And it's a wonderful life. Yeah. When Jimmy, when Jimmy Stewart's dancing at Donna yes. Reed and they're almost falling in the water. That's Lorraine's school. Wow. Another school that I thought didn't really exist. <laughs> yeah. Just like it was... calling someone an honorary farmer. <laughs> I, I got a million that... of them, honey. <laughs> I got a million of them. In Alfalfa the is in that scene, by the way. Pardon? For, Alfalfa is in that That's scene. That's right. He's, he's the, the one that he's opens it. He's the one it. that opens up the thing where Jimmy Stewart, st- Jimmy Stewart falls into the pool. He was still a rascal. He, he, died, he had a long... 
uh, life and uh, a happy death. Yeah. I'll, yeah, he was something like, I don't know how, he was young. Yeah. And I think he was stabbed to death or something. Oh, my he God. Was, I think he, he was stabbed over a, 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 a dispute about a dog. Yeah. Like I, I, he, I think. He was borrowing it or the other guy was borrowing it. Yeah. Nobody wants that kind of death. I don't remember that the, the details. Tell us about being on ki- on kids uh, say the darndest things as a kid. What were you well, for? I was four years old, and I have a twin brother. Uh, he was supposed to be on with me. We were the, the teachers recommend the kids for these shows, and uh, but my brother, we were watching Spin and Marty the night before, <laughs> and my brother, my older brother, said to my twin brother, "You look like your eyes are about to fall out." From watching TV, so I had told Art Linklater that was the reason why Paul wasn't there, and Art, of course, got a big laugh saying, "Another mighty blow for a television today." But um, yeah, you know, uh, I remember it very vividly, and they also gave everybody seventy-eight recordings. That's how long ago it was, people. A seventy-eight <laughs> recording and a tiny tears doll. Um, wow, do you still have the recording? Yes, but it's really hard to hear. I can imagine. Where, how could you even play a 78? Well, not anymore. I don't have a turntable. Yeah. I, I, um, the last time I think we ran into each other was at the uh, Saturday Night Live 40th reunion. Wasn't the um, Tribeca Film Festival after that? I think I that's where I saw you. I'm all confused. But I did run into you. Yes, both places. And, that was and nice. this, this, what was upsetting to me, uh, you're walking along with this attractive grown woman, and you said to me that you were pregnant. She was your daughter, and you oh, were yeah. pregnant with her when you were doing Problem Child 2. Yes, five months, trying thought, to hide it. And I thought, holy shit. Shit, that's a number of years. Yeah, it's how do we how do we otherwise measure time except by the size of our children? Yeah, yeah, they're going to be twenty eight or twenty nine actually. Wow. Oh Christ! Did you guys don't remember Problem Child too as well as I I should? You guys have scenes together? No. No. We don't have any scenes together, but no. it was fun. All of yeah. us there in Orlando. Yeah, Lorraine is, uh, her character is madly in love with John Ritter. Yeah, I've had two people, the the people that recognize me from that movie are usually security guards. I don't know why. (laughs) And and I've had two people tell me that they've gone as LaWanda for Halloween. That was the ultimate to me. I loved that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we had no, we talked. Like during the making of it, we hung out a little bit, but never, yeah, we had no scenes. Yeah, I have a really cute uh, Polaroid of you and I. You've got like the the Kleenex around your collar because we're in makeup, and I'm going to send it to you. It's very cute. Oh, thank you. Talk about getting started so young, Lorraine. I find this interesting, too. Uh, You know, 15, 16. Gilbert was 15 when he took the stage for the first time. I you know. Guys, you guys both that's... knew right out of the gut, right out of the uh, off the bat. You guys both knew what you wanted. Well, also, you know, I saw Gilbert do a show. Um, what was that show that Paul Provenza did? 
was where it was it was like um, karaoke stand up. There would be oh, a screen oh, in the back of the Oh, was that the list? The something list? The A list? Uh, no. It's, uh, no. It Not was the an, green room. Oh, was it the aristocrats? No, no, it wasn't the no. green room either. It was a different show because it was the mm-hmm. name of the actual improvised game. Oh. But it's an improvised game where there's a screen in back of you and there's random topics written by comedians. Yes, yes, there's something list. And you have to, the set list. That's what it's called, the set list. Yeah, the set list. And Gilbert knocked it out of the park. He was just amazing. You know, and for someone who does straight stand-up, I mean, uh-huh. I don't know if you ever considered yourself an improviser, but you were for like 25 minutes and that nailing was, it. Yeah, that was so much fun to do because I, th- I was, the whole time I was going, oh shit, I, <laughs> I, I can't do my regular fucking act. <laughs> <laughs> but and it, I it would have be to like, think. It would be topics like, you know, mermaid psychiatrist, you know, yes, things like that. It's just he was great. But and you I, and you don't have a chance to think you have no. to do it right away. Yeah. So we got to see your id. It was nice. Well, Gilbert, you riffed in the back in the day. You would get on stage with Belzer and do stuff off the top of your head. You used to do Dick and Stinky, the ventriloquist. thing. Oh, yes. And, and with Robin, too. No. Yeah, and yeah, Robin would call me up on stage, and I used to like, and I used to like to just not do anything for my act, and and if the audience was booing and walking out, I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> even happier. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I was you know in the theater department in high school, but I was performing in camp, writing my own shows, and mm-hmm. um. I uh, I saw Marcel Marceau at Royce Hall, which is at UCLA, and I became enthralled with this form of comedy with no words. So I went backstage after his show, and I asked him if there was someone in L.A. I could study with, and he gave me the name of Richmond Shepard. So I started studying with him when I was 15 or 16, and at the same time, Richmond was also teaching improv. So... That was when I started studying the Viola Spolin games as well. Mm-hmm. So many people have come on this show and talked about Viola. Uh, well, we had Paul Sand, of course. And, well, and she's s- the the grandmother of. Yeah, I and mean, she's really the genesis of the form. Yeah. And, and when you what met, was get, it? Ahead, what was it like? How did you get the audition for Saturday Night Live, and what were you going through when you were doing it? Well, first of all, everybody hates me when I say this. I didn't know I was auditioning. Uh, Lorne was producing a Lily Tomlin special, so he and Lily came to see the Groundlings. And this was in the very beginning when we had just named our company. Mm-hmm. And um, they were looking for people for her special, and they hired me. Um, and then Lorne came back a second time when I was doing new material and new characters, and he asked me to meet him at the Chateau Marmont to talk about a show that he was going to be doing. And, you know, I trusted him. I liked his taste. I knew that he was doing stuff that, you know, I never expected to see on TV. So it was thrilling. Except what did when he, he said, How did he pitch it to York. you as Monty Python meets, meets uh, 60, 60 Minutes? minutes. Yeah. yeah, a cross between Monty Python and 60 Minutes, yes. And you kind of bluffed and pretended you knew what Monty Python was. Right. Yeah. Um, and I got, you know, kind of 
um, teased a lot for not knowing them, but they weren't on in L.A. in 1975. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. they just started in 75 when I already left for New York, so I'd never seen them. I like how you describe Lauren in the book. You say the people, most people think of him as this mogul. And you yeah. and you you think of him as this this Canadian comedy writer wearing reindeer sweaters. Yeah, and really cute, really good looking. Yeah, and we were friends for a long time. So what the, what was the process? I mean, he pitched that to you. You you had to meet Ebersol as a formality. Do I have that right? Yes, Ebersol was there uh, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I was to go meet him there. And I approached from this side area. There was a sidewalk, and then I saw a sliding door, and this guy standing beside it saying, don't come any closer, I have pneumonia. So my whole interview <laughs> with him was through a, a screen door. Oh, my door. God. Yeah, but he was so wonderful. There were, he was so charming and so self-effacing, and, you know, everybody was young. I think he was 28, I was 22, Lauren was 28, and, you know, um, Dick said, hey, yeah, I come from the wide world of sports, so that absolutely qualifies me for late night comedy. So right. I just adored him right away. But they they say that um, uh, Austin Powers' Doctor Evil was based on Lorne Michaels. Well, you know, I'm not inside um, Mike Myers' head, but <laughs> it is it, it is a really good impression of Lorne, and that thing he does with his finger. Lorne chews on his cuticle. He, he may not do it anymore, but he did it a lot. So that's that, what that gesture is about. That's funny. Lorraine, you're, you're a bit of a comedy historian, too, as we talked about. Uh, in, in, in the Cliff, maybe, maybe not as... as uh, as Not as archival as Cliff as, 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 no. as Cliff is, but you're, but you're. I mean, you're dropping names in your memoir like Corbett Monica and and Pat Morita <laughs> the Hip Nip and, <laughs> and and Jackie Vernon. Have you heard Gilbert's Jackie Vernon bit? I yeah, know you do. No, you do one of your own. Do it. <clears throat> Here's some slides from my vacation. <laughs> Here's Manuel leading us around the quicksand. Here we are from the waist up. Here's a bunch of picks and shovels and things. <laughs> yeah, well, the one I did was his routine about the hitchhiker. Yes. You know, yeah. um, here I am driving my car. Here I am picking up the hitchhiker. Here's the hitchhiker stealing my car. Here's me hitchhiking. Here's me being picked up by the hitchhiker who stole my car, you know. He was the best. He was so good. Tell us about influences, too. Like Eve Arden turns yes. out to be a childhood influence of, you, of yours. And then there are these seminal moments in your story. Yes, of seeing Marcel Marceau, but also seeing the committee yes. live Yes, um, and also LA. listening to the Credibility Gap on Credibility KRLA Gap, right. Radio. Mm -hmm. And then eventually seeing them at the Ash Grove, which is mm -hmm. now the Improv West. Um, I guess I don't even have to say West anymore. The one in New York is closed, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I think um, so. I lost my train of thought. Well, you're talking about seeing the seeing the committee. You saw them at yeah. the Tiffany on Sunset. It's, exactly. And it I was, remember that um, place. it was Howard Hessman and Gary Goodrow and Carl Gottlieb and Valerie Curtin. Oh, funny I, people. I don't remember who else. I think maybe Larry Hankin. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Larry Hankin um, was in the committee. Boy, it was uh, 
I'd never seen that before either. I mean, it was a lot of firsts. We had access to so much in L.A. in terms of any kind of culture, play, dance, um, comedy, music. And I thrived on it. I, I went to see all of it. Was was improv the thing that about it that was exciting you? Was it written sketches? Was it was it both? It was Did, both. I especially love uh, sketches um, because I was always a little bit anxious on behalf of the actors when it was improv. And, as, mm-hmm. and to this day, when I go to see Groundling shows, I mean they they've narrowed the form down to such a degree where it's like you have a pencil, go, you know. And I my stomach is just in knots watching that. But everybody. Is so good. I mean, Gottlieb, got... Gottlieb was here with us. Carl. Oh yeah, a funny I love guy. Carl. Funny the guy. Best. And uh, Peter Bonner's too. Mm. And Hesseman, we got to get him on the podcast, Gil. Howard oh, Hesseman. My... Yes. You and Tracy, and we should mention your sister Tracy, who's also who's in comedy and Emmy-winning comedy writer. Mm-hmm. You guys yes. were you guys were among the founding members of Groundlings. Yes. Um, the initial people in the company were uh, Valerie Curtin, who is mm-hmm. actually Jane Curtin's cousin, um, Tim Matheson, who ultimately played the role that was written for Chevy in Animal House. Right. Um, pa- um, Pat Morita, Jack Sue. Jack Sue, Gilbert. Jeez. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know what we found out uh, when we had um, Hal Linden on? Yeah. Jack Sue is not Chinese. He's Japanese. Huh. And he, he changed name. his name to, he thought like a lot of people hate, hated the Japanese here oh since World War II. So he changed it to Jack Sue. And wow, uh, so I, I everyone did not assumed that. Yeah. Everyone assumed he was Chinese. I well, love the story in the book where you're talking about that trust exercise where you had to fall backward. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> I was at Cal Arts for about three months, and it just it wasn't for me, although it is where I met Paul Rubens. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, it was. this was a dinky theater on off of Vermont called the Cellar Theater. And, you know, the first thing I had to do when I got there was this fucking trust exercise where... I had to stand on top of like a five-foot brick wall and kind of just, you know, fall back, you know, like something you'd see, like a mosh pit, you know, into the arms of all these strangers. And I hated that kind of stuff. It was just so, I don't know, corny to me, but uh, they did catch me. Two of the people catching you were Pat Morita and Jack Sue. Yeah, it was all the people <laughs> I mentioned. I love yes. that. But does anybody remember that show Valentine's Day with Tony Franciosa and Jack? You know, you you mentioned that in the book, and I actually do not remember that one. Oh my God, it was! I remember Jack Sue on The Odd Couple. I remember him in uh, obviously in Barney Miller, and I remember Pat Morita from a million things. Well, now we have to go to the Museum of Television and see if they have uh, Valentine's Day. Did you stay in touch with those guys at all? Oh no, no. Yeah, yeah. Matheson too. It's just to to be there, just to just to be a witness to all of that stuff when it was yeah. happening. Yeah, well, when I it was saw, exploding. I saw Tim Matheson at Sketchfest a couple of years ago when they were doing a tribute to Animal House, and it took him a while. I was like, "Hey, you know," and he was. I I could tell by the look in his eye he had no idea who I was. But after that, and, it was really. 
That's great. the look I get when I run into absolutely anybody. <laughs> when when COVID lifts, I mean, and I, you probably haven't done this in a long time. You go, you still go to the Groundling shows. Oh, absolutely. Do you ever get the urge to get up and 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 do something? Um, I no. No, no. Um, but we do have an alumni class that we do uh, that mm-hmm. is run by Bill Steinkilner, um, who I is a groundling. Yes, yeah, and he and his big, wife big Sherry, writer. both are showrunners. Um, so it's it's all you know of us uh, seasoned older groundlings that do this uh, improv class. And every once in a while, I, I feel a little okay about doing improv, but not at the groundlings. Those people are next level really just beyond anything I could have ever done. And I wasn't really a great improviser to begin with. So um, I don't think, I mean, I've done like Cooking with Gas, which is, uh, it's it's a regular improv show with someone from the Sunday Company and a member of the alumni group. But it's been a while. Mm-hmm. But also now- the Groundlings is doing their shows on Zoom now. Right. And if you think improv is hard, Imagine being done on Zoom. They're just consummate, those people. They really I can are. imagine. Gilbert is going to attempt to do stand-up on Zoom in a, in a yeah. couple of weeks. Make sure you can hear, unmute the people who are watching so you can hear the laughs. Yeah, that's, that I think they do that. me. I mean, yeah. to, the idea of going out there and it's like... Uh, like doing it alone in your room, which it, which it literally is. How we all start, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lorraine, well, do te- do tell the story about auditioning for Bob Hope, because and 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 put in the details that you know Gilbert will appreciate. <clears throat> okay. Because <laughs> it's well, in the book. I was in the Groundlings, and uh, I was doing this monologue of the Valley Girl, Sherry the Stewardess. That it was eventually the whole monologue is used in the Godfather through group therapy sketch on SNL. Mm -hmm, A favorite. But um, I was auditioning, this is 1973, auditioning for Bob Hope. And, um, you know, I was so scared because I really had never auditioned for anybody before. I certainly didn't know I was auditioning for Lily's show. And this was after that. But um, they had me go into his dressing room, which was like a little bungalow on the soundstage. And it was crowded with a bunch of guys that I think were his golf buddies. And they all kind of looked like the characters in that Bill Brasky sketch on SNL. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they all looked like that. They had, yeah. you know, the gin blossom nose and the roomy eyes and stuff. <clears throat> and um, Bob Hope was sitting on a couch holding uh, a golf club. And his legs were akimbo. And I could see the outline of his balls. <laughs> so, which is distracting, let me tell you. But he was not wearing any kind of support, so they were just hanging there like like uh, jingle bells. And um, it was it was. And I did this, you know, the same monologue, you know, Encino and Bitch and Bod and all this stuff. But of course, in '73, nobody had ever heard of a Valley Girl, and right. he he was just looking at me like. Uh, <laughs> What are you? And what is that thing you just did? Because I want to tell you, you and it don't even belong in the same building as show business. Oh. And, I mean, he I, he didn't say that. I, I, that's what I believe he was thinking. I see. He really looked at me like I was not even a, a human being. 
like I had three heads or something. Which, which one was more painful, the Bob Hope audition or the King of Comedy audition? Oh, the King of Comedy, for sure. <laughs> you'd, have to, of you'd have to sit on Bob's lap and play with his hair. De Niro's <laughs> expression on his face looked like he was smelling a Chinese restaurant dumpster. Really. <laughs> Uh, which, again, he was supposed to be doing, but I can only imagine what he was thinking. At least Bob didn't sit on his own balls like uh, like Mr. Belvedere. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. On your podcast. Yeah, you've heard that. You've yeah, heard that. tell that story. I, I was actually on the uh, lot. I was doing an appearance on some show, and Mr. Belvedere was being done on that lot. And so we... <laughs> We were the first ones to get the story that Mr. <laughs> Belvedere was being rushed to the hospital by ambulance because he just sat on his own balls. <laughs> oh, sometimes fortune shines on you, Gilbert. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lorraine, we, we, we jump all over the place. She's heard it on the show. She's, she listens to the show. She's heard your John MacGyver. She's she's heard she you know about Cesar Romero as well I assume. Oh if my God, you, the lemons, yes. an, oranges. The oranges, oranges. oranges. Get Forgive it right. me, oranges. <laughs> he, my goodness, oranges. Cesar Romero would never take lemons on his ass. <laughs> it was strictly oranges. <laughs> what is the source of that story? I gotta know. Yeah, yeah. Where'd that come from, Gil? I don't know, but I've heard it a couple of times. Some even claim. That he would stand ankle deep in in warm water. Oh my God! I, I, it's kind of well. It's kind of like I hear variations on the Danny Thomas, where in some stories I hear he would dress up in a priest outfit. Cesar Romero or Danny Thomas? Danny no, Thomas. Danny Thomas. Cesar Romero would never dress as a priest out, no. outfit. No. And, <laughs> and never lemons. <laughs> Lorraine, we, we'll get back to SNL, but t- th- this is, I, I like the story too. And the, the, the memoir goes all the way from your childhood growing up in what? Would you move six times, seven times? Yes, yeah, six in, times. In Los Angeles as a kid. You, it's, it's, there's fascinating L.A. history. Uh, and you the, tell tell the Fred Astaire story because it's a, there's a sweetness to it and a sadness to it. Yeah, and it, it also speaks to why we do this podcast is so that is so that great veteran performers are never forgotten. Well, first I should say that you know Beverly Hills and Los Angeles, it's just like any other industry town, even if it mm-hmm. were like Detroit, uh, except this one. If it was Christmas, you would see Cary Grant shopping at Carol and. Con- you know, company or, you know, uh, there was a fencing school on Santa Monica Boulevard with a big picture window. And I remember seeing Tony Curtis shirtless fencing, you know, in the school. But one day my my friends and I were walking on Rodeo Drive and I saw uh, Fred Astaire. And I mean, he was he he looked ancient. His skin had that kind of pepper, uh, papery kind of texture to it. And um he seemed very feeble and I kind of tapped him on the shoulder, which surprised him, I think unpleasantly. And I, I said, Oh my God, it's you. He says, yes, my dear. And I, you're wonderful. And he says, thank you. It's nice to be remembered. Oh, and I remember thinking at the time, how could he think that we would know that anybody would not remember him? 
And then that movie Ghost Story, which I'm sure you've seen with Douglas Fairbanks oh, Jr. Sure. and Melvin Douglas. John Houseman. These, these guys that get away with murder um, and are haunted. And it was like he was a different guy. He'd had work, and it was as if it breathed life into him again. Uh, and that was so inspiring because it can happen. That's the thing about our business. You're never too old. You know, you think about someone like Don Amici or Ralph Bellamy having their careers, you know, revitalized because they were used by someone who was hip right. to them. Right, right. You know, Landis. and then they continued to work. Yeah. I, I yeah. heard when they were doing... Um... Oh, God, what the Eddie Murphy... Oh, Trading Places. Trading Places. Uh, They said, uh, the director said, uh, I'd like this character to be kind of like a Don Amici. Sort of like that. He said that to Don Amici? No, no, to one of the other people working on the picture. And, And the other guy said, oh, well, Don Amici's still around. And goes. In fact, I I ran. I saw him walking down the street yesterday. I think he lives around here, and that's how Don Amici got the part in Trading Places. That's, that's sweet. Fantastic. They, they, they thought he was dead. It's yeah. sweet. They both had a little that. renaissance after that. He, he and Bellamy. Yes. Uh, Amici's in that mammoth picture. Uh, things change. We, we, he's, he's also he's in wonderful. Cocoon. And Cocoon. That's right. Yeah. They both they both started to work after that. Well, mm-hmm. obviously that's you know that's why I was talking to Stephen Weber the other day. You know you know Stephen Weber very well, yes. And he was talking about running into Carl Ballantyne. Do we all remember the amazing Ballantyne? Oh yeah, yeah. I know I, his daughter I once, too. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah. Stephen Stephen said he saw Carl Ballantyne in an eatery in L.A. and he had to get up and go over to him and tell him what he what he had meant to him. And he said that the look in his eyes was unforgettable. Yeah. You know. So well, I also, I mean, the same thing with Danny Kay. I saw Danny Kay outside of Nate and Al's. Mm-hmm. I was a teenager, and I was across the street, but he saw me see him. You know, he saw, like, you know, the pupil dilation of excitement and uh, winked at me. Oh, that's sweet. First, ki- first kind word about Danny Kay on the show, yes. Gil. Yes. <laughs> also, I mean, if you can imagine the look he was wearing, he had long hair and long sideburns. And like a paisley scarf tied around his neck. It was the '60s, and he he looked great. I mean, he really looked like he fit in with the. Stressing uh, like Rod McEwen. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. I yes. I remember I once uh, was over at Carl Ballantyne's house, and I'd ask him questions about these legendary showbiz people, and I go like, "So, how was Jack Benny to work with?" And and he goes. Oh, he was okay. He didn't bother anybody. <laughs> I love that attitude. That's great. Aww. I love I love the part of the book where you're talking about seeing these people in the street and and running into these people. And and you grew who was your next door neighbor? Well I was uh, Gilbert, down the you'll street. love this. I was down the street from Kirk Douglas, uh across the street from Groucho Marx. How about that? And Jeez. and and Edgar Bergen. That and, was on and, another street. Cause... And what, what was it, the last house where, where you the, you had a neighbor who you said wasn't home that much, but his wife was there uh, or his daughter oh, was no, there Oh, no, that was the first house in oh, Beverly Hills. House. And it was okay. uh, Leo Gorsi's house. Oh, and his, man. His sister would hang out in front, and she talked just like the Bowery boys, you know. <laughs> uh, and she couldn't stand kids, I tell you. We were... Uh, 
always, you know, you kids stop riding your bike in front of this house and quit taking the rocks. Um, she was. It sounds like you lived in a Hirschfeld drawing. I don't know how Hirschfeld. That's oh Hirschfeld, yeah. Yeah. For some reason I thought Norman Rockwell. Yeah, Hirschfeld. No. That's right. That's a good way of putting it. Who was in Beverly Hills? Go ahead, Gil. Yeah. No. So, did you have dealings with Groucho and Kirk Douglas? No, not at all. Just I knew that they were neighbors. Edward G. Robinson lived nearby, and oh. but you know we lived in so many houses, and I forgot to mention that um, when they, my parents were selling their house on Cannon Drive, William Castle came to Gee. look at the house. Oh my God, that's not even yeah. in the book. No, it's not. But, <laughs> that's uh, great. You heard it first. That's great. <laughs> I also love your little childhood crush on somebody we had on this podcast. Tom Hatton? Well, you know, Tom Hatton, by the way, I looked him up. He passed away in 2019. I know. I know you had a crush on Tom Hatton, who was the local Popeye host in L.A., Gilbert. Oh. Yeah. Tom, he was like the L.A., I guess the L.A. version of Officer Joe Bolton or Captain Jack McCarthy. Jack McCarthy used to right. do Popeye. Well, we had here. But uh, the, the guy I'm talking about is Ilya Kuryakin. Oh, God, yes. David and that McCall. was a great episode, by the way. Thank you. Great. He, but He was fun. Yeah. Loved. I loved Martin Landau from Mission Impossible, Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek, and David McCallum from Man from U.N.C.L.E. I just loved the guys. And and we we really wanted Martin Landau. Oh, we tried oh, that hard. Been amazing. We yeah. tried hard. But what's the McCallum story? You were you were in, you were in high school or junior high? We, I was in high school, and um, I want to just set the stage for what I looked like. <laughs> uh, I was very skinny, and I had a brace. I had a body brace that went from my neck to my hips, um, and I had uh, cystic acne. And it, and braces, and at night I had to wear one of those <laughs> night things, you know, the thing that oh, the, strap a retainer? That goes, it, It's the strap that the headgear. You know oh, what I'm that about. goes all yeah. the way around the back of yeah, your yeah. head. I was and, a looker, yeah. um, and in the book I say, is that a recipe for comedy or what? But now, what, um, what was the body brace? It was for scoliosis. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, but at least I wore it. From 13 to 15 and a half, you know, when you're not self-conscious. But, um, <clears throat> you know, we there was a uh, there was an oil f- well that's still there that is above the, the football field. But there was also um, a power station that was used a lot for uh, action shows. And they were filming Man from Uncle there one day. And we had run the track and... We were all kind of lying down on the grass, cooling off. Our shirts were open, some of us, you know, just to cool off. And there I was, resplendent in my brace and trainer bra. (laughs) And, you know, my eyes were closed, and I was doing what I always did when my eyes were closed. I was fantasizing about David McCallum. (laughs) And then I opened my eyes, and I look up, and there's this chain-link fence. And he's, like, resting on his arms. His chin is on his arms, looking down like... An Amazonian explorer coming upon a tribe of people thought to be extinct. He just wow. looked so like, what is this? You know, and then he walked away. Uh, but then later on, I went up to the set and uh, met him. And it was really the kind of thing where I took some of the gravel that he, st- he stepped on. And, you know, <laughs> it was just. 
Well, this is why this is teenager. This is why I love the stories of growing up in L.A. It's a wonderland because you could you could live across the street from Groucho next door to a Bowery boy, have a fantasy about David McCallum and then David McCallum walks over. Yeah, it's it's but only in only in L.A. Yes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's it's kind of like. Well, getting back to Jack Benny, it's like on his show, the doorbell would ring and it's like. Well, why do you know? It's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> it's Harry Von Zell. What do you yeah. know? Harry Von yeah. Zell. <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Lorraine, let me throw some questions at you from listeners. Okay. Some, there's some fun ones here. Uh, Mark Schatzberg, ask uh, Lorraine just to tell us one thing about the movie Holy Moses. And by the way, who do I have to throw orange wedges at to get my question read on this podcast? That's funny. There you go. It's now been read, Mark. Mark, Mark you are terrific, he, Mark. Um, he's in. Well, Holy Moses, <clears throat> we had a lot of fun. I mean, I, I saw it for what it was, which was really kind of a comedy salad they were making mm-hmm. a lot of movies like that in those days where they just threw every comedian in imaginable. And uh, Gary was, Weiss, right? Who was making the Gary shorts Weiss on SNL. directed it, yeah, yes. Yeah, and yeah. David Bagelman uh, produced it. Mm-hmm. But me and Dudley Moore became friends immediately. And he and I both would play games on set while we were waking, waiting. Like um, we would name obscure, I would name obscure British TV actors and he would name obscure American TV actors. So he would say Roy Thinnes and I'd say Diane Salento. And this this kept us going for a long time. And he, he was just wonderful. I loved him. And we stayed friends after that. I'm a big remember, fan of those guys. I once met Roy Thinnes. And he, he's and, a great actor. Is he around I Roy Thinnes? I, I think he is because I've seen yeah, him I somewhat think, recently. I think he is and too. I shouldn't be say things like obscure because they're really they were very it was just it was a time and a genre mm-hmm. that you would never expect someone from England to know. Right. Maybe and, he watched the invaders. I uh, yeah, I remember I said to him, I said, You were on that show, uh, the invaders, and I said and the way you knew who the invaders were was their pinky was uh, uh, well, it was malformed. That's right. And he looked at me, his eyes popped out of his head. But I knew that. that. you knew that? Oh, yeah, beautiful. Right. Larry Cohen show, The Invaders, Gilbert. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yes. I love he Larry He was Cohen. great. We had him on here. I know. I oh, heard he's it. Wonderful. You can't name a person that you've had on the show that I haven't heard. I have heard every episode. That warms my heart, Lorraine. Here's yes. another one. Harold Steenworth. Hey, Lorraine, uh, when you and Gilda and Jane did the wonderful Bob and Ray special, I second that. That is a treasure. Uh, you look like you're all really enjoying uh, yourselves. Can you tell us one thing about working with Bob and Ray? Oh, my God. Well, you know, I think that. Jane and Gilda and everybody in the cast, we came from our specific 
areas of comedy that we loved. Mm -hmm. I had never heard of Bob and Ray. This was something that Franken and Davis were really passionate about. And I don't know if Gilda and Jane had heard of Bob and Ray until they came into our, you know, realm because of Franken and Davis. And that was even before the special. But um, to see guys that age for us, and they seemed ancient, to be that hip and that and have content that is so smart and appeals to us, but is also kind of alt, it would absolutely be considered alternative, mm -hmm. was really exciting. Yeah, it's great. I'll never forget Ray Goulding singing, Do You Think I'm Sexy? Yeah, <laughs> no, that was great. That was wonderful. You, you, you and Gilda sort of hit it off. You know, we, you know the show, and you know we've had Zwei Bill here a hundred times. He wanted and, me to say hi to you guys, by the way. Oh, I, I owe him a call. You guys are doing, and, and so I don't forget at the end, plug this event you're going to do that Jeff wants me to uh, mention. Yes. You and Alan are going to do an event at the uh, 92nd Street Y, virtually, obviously. Yes. March 11th? It'll be March 12th, or is, is it, it March, March 11th? He told me March 11th. Yeah, and that's actually the day that the memoir is available on Audible. Good. Let's download. keep plugging it. Let's plug yeah. it away because people really need to hear it. But you and you, you said in the book you, uh, that you and Gilda kind of hit it off right away. That but and then she was protective of you. Yeah. I mean, she she, was, she obviously hit it off with Alan right right away as well, and they became famous friends. But she was really a a good person and really warm. And you know, when I got there, I was uh, I didn't know anybody, and Gilda knew John and Danny and. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, eventually Bill Murray, too. She was older than I was. She had a lot more experience and was more confident than I was. And I don't know if I projected my, my fear at all, but she was just so warm and kind of mothering in a way, which was just what I needed. And I think when we first met, she took me to a recording session for a Lampoon album called That's Not Funny, That's sick mm -hmm. and that was where i met uh belzer and uh ramus yes harold ramus yeah. uh brian Doyle murray and bill murray um and bob tischler i can't remember who else but big, uh, big names yeah and i worked on the album little part uh which was great because nobody knew me and and it was a nice vote of confidence uh, but yeah, she did that first thing, which was pretty generous of her. And just, um, I just all through, you know, our tenure on the show and after, I mean, she would, didn't ever forget my birthday. She knew I liked sushi and my house on Beverly Glen, I would see someone walking up the driveway and it was be, it would be sushi delivery from her. She just was that way. It's one of the nice things in the book, too, that you, you run that thread of the relationships with the people on the show. Um, and then oh, there's, yes. a, there's, of course, a part of the book where, you know, you're dealing with John passing away and then finally Gilda's passing. So it's not all laughs. No, uh, uh, no uh, a lot the, the, of loss. A lot a of lot loss. Of, a lot of loss. And your friend Marjorie Gross. and <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the Robert Durst thing that we won't go into. But people people have to read the book. And read past the, I will tell our listeners, read past the Saturday Night Live section, too. Because the, the chapters after SNL, some, some wild things happen to you. 
Yeah. I mean, from dating Warren Zevon to you're having parties at, at, at Larry Flint's house. I mean, it's... No, no, I attended parties. Oh, oh you Flint. attended parties I didn't at Larry Flint's? <laughs> Larry let me use his house for parties, Frank <laughs> and Gilbert. It was so nice of him. Uh, and, um, you know, you're talking about going to the Playboy Mansion and there's James Caan. You just, you, yeah. you witnessed everything yeah. that was happening in Los Angeles in show business from, well, that's, from the last 35 years. Yeah, that's why I call it May You Live in Interesting Times, because I feel like I've had a front row seat at lots of really seminal uh, shifts in our in our pop culture. And uh, so it's not only a memoir, but it's also things that I've borne witness to that became um, something really significant in pop culture. Mm hmm. Yeah, everything. You, the comedy boom. I mean, the, the improv, the, you know, the, the birth of that in L.A., Mm -hmm. With with Gary yeah. Austin and the Groundlings and, and the Comedy Store when it first opened. Yeah, and... yeah. Who did you see at the store? You saw everybody, didn't you? I know you talked about Landisburg and Freddie Prinze and. Yeah, and I saw the Step Brothers, which was uh, Craig T. Nelson. That's right, Craig T. Nelson. Uh, oh, was it um, Barry Levinson? Barry Levinson yeah. and Rudy DeLuca. It was right. the three of them. They had like an act. And I saw Richard Pryor and Freddie Prinze and Jay Leno all trying out new material. It was really thrilling. It was a thrilling time. I saw Frank and Davis there, too. They were wild. I saw Frank and Davis live during the Writers Guild strike in 1988. They were great. Um, yes, they were. They toured during the strike because they had nothing to do. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Tell us one thing about O'Donoghue. Uh, uh, because we've had Alan. Alan has talked about him. Chevy was here with us and talked a little bit about him. And I want to point out and rem remind people that you were 23 years old when you walked into this yes, situation yes. That, that, that radically changed your life. I mean, I, and everything that was happening around you, I don't think I could have handled it at 33, <laughs> let, let alone at 23, how young you were. I don't know if I handled it at all, but I can tell you um, when I first got there, Everything I had was in a car that I drove cross-country uh, to do the show. <clears throat> all, all of my records, <clears throat> all my clothes, mm -hmm. um, and all my written material, and my costumes, and the car was stolen. So I had absolutely nothing. And I found that when I got back uh, to L.A., most of the things I owned had been gifts from the Belushis and O'Donohue. So I think that that's really kind of, you know, O'Donoghue really gave great gifts and he gave them on no particular occasion. And I don't know that people really know that he was like that. No, he, because he has this reputation as, as, as being sort of a, a dangerous. Well, God you help know, you uh, if uh, he didn't like you. Yes, you know? <laughs> that we've heard that. Uh, and I wish I could could have produced that letter that he had written it was when Chevy was going to host the show, he wrote this letter that he put on everybody's desk. And I cannot for the life of me remember what was in it, but it made Chevy so mad. And um, somebody's going to know what I'm talking about. I just can't remember. That's okay. <clears throat> we, we asked Chevy about a couple of unproduced screenplays that he and Michael wrote oh. to get together. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's a larger-than-life character. Den a, a friend of ours named Dennis Perrin wrote a good book about Michael O'Donoghue. Yeah. Mr. I, Mike. I've read it. I've read it. Yeah. It's terrific. Yeah. And it, Well-researched. I did a show, and I saw, um, oh, what is the name of that comedian? He's really, um, 
Mill, it'll come to me, but he's he's a tough customer. And um, he said, the only reason I'm doing this show is because I want to meet Lorraine Newman. And afterwards, he said, I love Michael O'Donohue. And he says that you you and John were the only people who really, like, got his material. Mm-hmm. And I never knew that. And then I looked at the book, and it really what, what Michael said was that John and I <clears throat> best represented his material. We're able to, like, interpret it probably closest to what he had wanted and it, and envisioned. What a nice compliment. Yeah. I remember someone was talking, God, one of our guests was talking about John Belushi, that when he, he was working on Animal House and he would fly back and forth to do Saturday Night Live too. Yeah, to Oregon. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to hear about it because, you know, you just... Now, oh, John Belushi, wild man, totally drugged out. But he had, he was able to do that. Like, yeah, I I did off. that when I did American Hot Wax. I flew back and forth. And when I did, uh, let's see, I did Holy Moses, I think. You must have still told. been on SNL when you did Holy Moses. I think you did. I think I was. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but also when I did American Hot Wax, I was flying back and forth between L.A. and New York. <clears throat> you know we love the the scary, uh, weird anecdotes on this show, uh-huh. Lorraine. So I'm going to make you tell Gilbert uh, what Chuck Berry said to you on the set of American Hot Wax. Oh my God! Well, <laughs> now I've been Sounds talking. Sounds good already. <laughs> no, it's it's no big deal. But I was talking to him, you know, because I love talking to people about music. And at one point, we were in, we were at the um, the Wiltern Theater, which is at Wilshire and Western. And it was doubling as the Brooklyn Paramount. And there was a big curtain that was closed. And my back was against the curtain, and he was in front of me. And he pulled the curtains around both of us so that we were in kind of a cocoon. And he said, Lorraine, I want to make love to you. And I can't remember how I got out of it, but I remember (laughs) making the mistake of telling Jay Leno about it. He teased me mercilessly. It was also in the movie. For the rest of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's not in the movie, no. Jay, no, Jay Leno's in the movie. Oh, I mean. yes. Oh, he's yeah. in the movie. He and yeah. Fran Drescher yeah. are the best thing in the movie, actually. Yeah, they're both good. Yeah, good so movie, good. by the way. It's, I, re- it's, I, yeah. I rewatched it last night. Well, you know why it's hard to get is because they never got any licensing for the music. It's on YouTube, which I shouldn't say, but uh, it's a very affectionate, you know, look at that period. Obviously, uh, Floyd Mutrix had a great fondness for Alan Freed. Yes, and it comes across. And you were playing sort of a Carol King type character. Did she yes. pay you a compliment years later? Yeah, she said that uh, of all the movies that depicted her experience at the Brill Building, that was the most accurate, which I thought was great. And um, I, you know, I did that stupid thing where it's like there's some like Sandy Shaw song called "Girl Don't Come" or "Boy Don't Come." A girl don't come, I think. And um, I was talking to her about it. Or it might have been Stay a While by Dusty Springfield saying, and you wrote that song. She says, no, I didn't. And I went, yes, you did. You know, like 50 million people must have done that. It's so embarrassing when you do that. You're, she's you're, great. Yeah. Oh, we'd love, to, we'd love to get her here. She's, you know, as you oh, know, she's, she's, a little, she's a little interview shy. 
Oh, is she? As you know, Carol King. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to get her here. I'm not going to ask you about favorite hosts. You go into, I will tell people, there's a lot of SNL backstage stuff, which is great. I just do want to bring up uh, Buck Henry. Yes. Uh, the late, great Buck Henry, who Gilbert and I were lucky enough to have here. Um, oh, that's great. You know, and and Buck was, was still sharp enough to do the show, even after he'd had his stroke. I can't imagine, and I, I, I don't want to... Uh, I'm not one of those people that says, you know, the new Saturday Night Live is terrible and it was only it was only great once. But I will say that imagine doing a show like a sketch like Uncle Roy now. Yeah, well, oh. because it has so much merit. The, sh- um, the show <clears throat> took such chances. I know, but uh, I don't think that it was perceived on our part, at least, as being abs- as subversive as it would have been to any of us now after having children, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But Buck was wonderful. I mean, when I came back to L.A. and he was living here, he invited me up to his house for lunch. and He made cheese and bologna sandwiches on white bread with mayonnaise. And I watched, I walked into his house and there was this kind of apparatus that looked like a swing. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I realized that it was not irregular swing. And he had no compunction about telling me exactly what it was, but it's so prominent when you walk into the house. And I was really clutching my pearls over that one, let me tell you. And, I've, and I've heard forget, some stories about Buck. I forget whether you told it or not, uh, but uh, were you one of the people who, uh, there were a couple of people who, who saw Milton Berle's cock. Not me. <laughs> she, no, she, I only heard it. about it. But Zweibel kept telling us how any chance Burl got, he would show Zweibel his cock. And if you know Alan, <laughs> Alan's very shy. And it's easy, it's easy to, to, like, you know, really kind of run over his boundaries, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and I can, knowing Alan as I do, I can only imagine the look on his face each time he was forced to look at his schlang. Which, I mean, a- you know, a- I Alan just... likes to describe as an anaconda. <clears throat> oh, dear God. Yeah. Dear yeah. God. No, Lorraine did not have the pleasure, Gilbert, as established in our previous episode, but I did share with her a cartoon that one of our fans made. Yeah, that was amazing. Did you see I it, s- Gilbert? I, I'll send it to you. I'm sure Gilbert's Wait. seen it. We we have some amazing artists yeah. among our fans. They go out of their way, as you can see. So, Brendan Bliss is his name, and he took our t- our audio from that episode with Lorraine. And it's and Gilbert, you do a whole bit about Uncle Milty's cock stopping saving yes. saving. Oh, world, I did see that. Yeah, yes, starting World yes. War II and amazing. Yeah. yeah, and being seen from space. Being seen from space. Uh, what about since you have such a great fondness for for the old time comics? What about when Rodney hosted? A- any memory um, of that? It, well, just the fact that you know, I Lorne did not like us to break during a sketch. He felt that that was really kind of smacked of Carol Burnett, and which mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with it. Just that we weren't that show, and I was never really challenged in that way. I mean, when I look at the show now. When they do the uh, the sketch with um, Kate McKinnon, where she's abducted by aliens, uh huh. Oh yeah. I don't know how Bobby Moynihan. Oh, she's great. And she... and Ad Bryant keep it together. She's a great talent. Yeah, and also um, what they set up with um, Stefan with Bill Hader, where you know. Um, Seth Myers. Oh, 
Well, no, it was oh. um, <clears throat> it was uh, John Mulaney who wrote that sketch uh -huh. and would surprise him with stuff that he hadn't seen in the dress rehearsal. So that's one of the uh. reasons he'd be laughing so hard. But those days, <laughs> you know, it took a long time to get to the show to be like that. We were not supposed to do that. And the only time I was ever even mildly in a position where I almost lost it was when he... <clears throat> we were doing a parody of Manhattan, Woody Allen's Manhattan, called Manhasset. And uh, I played the Mariel Hemingway part and, you know, Rodney's the Woody Allen part. And he says to me, uh, don't go to Manhasset, Tracy. I'm telling you, it's rough. I bought a waterbed the other day and there's a guy at the bottom of it. You know, and I had heard, I'd heard that line. <clears throat> I heard it in, heard it in read through. I heard it in dress rehearsal, and I heard it on the air. And I still was struggling not to laugh. He was great. My sister knew him too. My sister knew a lot of these comics. Tracy. So when I would meet them, I'd say I'm Tracy Newman's little sister, and it was it was a wonderful thing. I I loved things like you know ex police. Yes, Remember it's so Danny. It's yeah. so Danny. Stuff where well, they really took chances and they did, <clears> especially <throat> after update, especially at the, in the 1230 part of the show where right. fewer people were watching and they just do the weirdest stuff. There was that weird kitchen sink drama that Belushi did with Sissy Spacek. You know the one I mean? Vaguely. It's, 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 it's great. But also, I love that when Ron Nesson hosted and you guys all knew that President <laughs> Ford would be watching, yes. everybody went out of their way to be on their worst behavior. Well, <laughs> so it, just episode. the content. We, yeah. we, were, we were certainly not, you know, uh, misbehaved around him, but the content. And don't ask me to remember what it was. I think it's in the book. Autumn Fizz. The, the douche was in That's that episode. That's right. Gilda burps at the end. <laughs> it's so right. great. But... And, yeah. and, and fluckers. <clears throat> yes. Was yeah. that on that show? Yeah, mangled baby ducks. Yeah, oh ten thousand nuns and orphans. Mm. Really, really good stuff. That Chevy was the first person to tell you the aristocrats joke. Gilbert will yes. enjoy knowing this. Ah. Yes, and he acted it out. He he pantomimed it, and he told the uh, there's as you know there's two versions: the scatological one and the incest one. He did the incest one, and uh, I. I mean, I cannot tell you how hard I laughed. And then years later, after the show, I was in bed at my boyfriend's house. I had broken my ribs, and I don't know how Chevy tracked me down. But, you know, the opening line to the joke is, guy goes to a booking agent. So the phone rings, no hello, this is Chevy, nothing. It's just, guy goes to a booking agent. Now, you know, my ribs are broken. I don't know if you've ever broken your ribs, but even breathing... Uh, is painful, let alone laughing. Um, and I thought that was so sweet. It was such a loving thing for him to do, and I'm not being facetious. I'm looking at some of these sketches, too, and Gilbert and I just recently talked about the Claudine Langer Ski Invitational. Yes. On the podcast. Classic one. O'Donoghue must, must have been. I don't know, but I know that that was the first time there was any kind of threat of a lawsuit. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, because she was acquitted, I th as as mem as memory serves. Yeah, it was like a running thing whenever you saw someone go in a uh, skier go into the air, and it was a white you'd hear a famous wipeouts. It's just great. Yeah, you'd hear yeah. a gunshot, and they go, "Oh, Claudine Langer 
accidentally <laughs> shot another one. Yeah. I, I was 14 and 15 when I discovered <clears throat> when the, those when the show was really kind of peaking and and mm-hmm. I obviously I had never seen comedy like that on television. Nobody had seen comedy like that on television. Nobody well, had seen but nobody was doing sketches about police brutality or or shooting or or someone murdering their skier boyfriend. Yeah, or drool bucket, you know. I, or the drool bucket. Right. I talk a lot Jim, about Jim sketches. Downey. And and Aykroyd, yes. And Aykroyd. Um, but yeah, um, that was in the context of I think Miles Cowperthwaite, which was a running thing we did with Michael Palin. Brilliant. This Dickensian uh, orphan who is you know subjected to unimaginable horrors. And the first time we did it, it was <clears throat> this character that Danny did, and it was at the twelve o'clock slot. And they had created this incredible prop that went around Danny's head, and there was a little cup right below his lower lip. <laughs> and there was also a large bucket of this kind of gray, gloopy stuff that was, you know, when he emptied the drool cup, he would put it in the drool bucket. Uh, but this was his affliction, Danny's character's affliction, and Miles was supposed to empty the drool bucket. But it was so out there and so unique. And one of the things I do in the book is talk about my favorite ensemble sketches mm-hmm. and the things that went on behind the scenes with those. Yeah, you tell great stories about that the, the sketch when Peter Cook and Dudley Moore were hosting, which I, I oh. share your the life of follies. I share your love for that sketch. Oh my god! You remember Gilbert? It's a prison audition for the musical Gigi. <laughs> Garrett Morris steals the show. But you're all funny in it. You are, you are wonderful too in that Exorcist sketch with Richard Pryor. Oh, thank you. And that, that great, great black actor, uh, Thalmus Rosalala. Thalmus Rosalala. So, Rosalala, yes. yeah, who passed away very, very young. <laughs> the man is on my foot. Oh, Father Chorus, I'm ever so hungry. Couldn't you give me some pea soup? It's right over there. The Thank you, little girl. Hey. Just such a nice little girl. I knew it all the time. Oh, Here's your pea soup. Maybe now we can be friends, huh? That's what do right. you say? Second. Oh, Father Chorus, I'm ever so sorry. Let's make up here. Have a flower. Oh, what a sweet gesture. You're a sweet little girl. Jive turkey. And I loved you always as E. Buzz Miller's sidekick. Chrissy Christina. As Chrissy Christina. I, um, I hate to say this, but I never thought, I never knew what was funny about that character at all. Buzz Miller? His character I love. <laughs> <clears throat> that was a real guy. Um, that was a real guy that was in Tahiti. Uh, and I had gone there uh, to the island of Rangiroa, which is a beautiful, beautiful island. And and I think like at the, around the same time, but not at the same time, uh, Tom Davis and Danny went there too. So they saw this guy. He's a real guy. It's not his name. But he had, you know, he sold postcards of topless Tahitian women. I loved Buzz Miller. I loved Irwin Mainway. Those those sketches he did Irwin with Jane. Irwin Mainway, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yes. And I learned so much about a show I thought I knew so much about that that 
another edgy sketch, Danny ble practically bleeding to death as Julia Child. Oh, God. Yeah. That, was off uh, offered to Walter Matthau. Yes, and he did not want to do anything in, in drag. But um, Al got the idea because he and I were watching Julia Child on TV, and she had Jacques Pepin on with her. And, you know, they were doing a close-up of a saucepan, and they were pushing a chicken fillet around <clears throat> in the saucepan with their hands. And Julia Child had cut herself, so she had this huge bandage on her. And her hands were so much bigger than his, too. There was just something so funny about the image of these two strange hands and the idea that she had cut herself. And I think that's where Al got the idea. In fact, I know it is where he got the idea for that. Such good stuff. I, I, I really have to go back. You also talk about possibly my favorite sketch ever. And I know I'm saying a, a lot of them. These are a lot of my favorite sketches. I keep picking a new favorite sketch. Is, is Lord and Lady Douchebag from season five. Yes, Which that is, was our last show. Yes, with Buck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was all the stuff that we had wanted to do and never could. And you know, the the book is also a story. It's a it's a it's your personal story, but it's also a story of you kind of hitting the wall. You know, a after SNL, I mean, you were exhausted. You were a little bit of a fish out of water in New York. You went back to L.A. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, and then the re the rest of the book, and by the way, as I said before, a lot of great stories after the SNL years, with yeah. you d dating everybody from Peter Cook to Phil Hartman to 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 the great Warren Zevon, you and I talked about on the phone. Yeah, and Mark uh, Mothersbaugh, who was an incredibly and, funny guy, and and Mark <laughs> Mothersbaugh from Devo. Yeah, you would never think that Warren is funny, but he was funny. You know, um, Mark Mothersbaugh is incredibly funny. Obviously, Peter and Phil, but. Yeah. But also talk a little bit about just and I know it's hard to sum it up in, in, in little bite sized chunks, but but you were also dealing with a lot of depression and, and self doubt yeah. as a performer. Yeah. Well, you know, um I always felt that I had a really clear idea of what my limitations were. And that's not a you know, it wasn't a good thing to look at. <clears throat> and I um it's like people kept saying things to me like, you can do it. And I knew I couldn't, you know, and couldn't understand what was the schism. Why did people think I could do this kind of acting when I knew that I couldn't? And so I kept expecting myself to be able to do, and that was really rough because I was constantly uh, faced with my limitations. Uh -huh. So that coupled with, you know, lifelong experience of depression, I mean... When I was four years old, I, I, well, my twin brother and I uh, didn't really get to see much of our mother until we were four years old because my mom was pregnant with another baby who died after it was born. And so she was depressed, and then she got sick from the hospital, and then she had to have a hysterectomy. So understandably, this poor woman was depressed, and we really didn't get to see much of her. But <clears throat> I remember telling my dad all the time that I was homesick. Because that's the only thing I knew about what that feeling was inside me. And he would laugh and say, but you're home. But that was the loneliness that I was feeling, and I just didn't know the name for it. So um, it's been a journey. I mean, my God, I, I'm so grateful for the life that I have today. Well, we talk on the show, and Gilbert, you've mentioned this yourself, you know, how there's, there's, oh, there's that belief when you start out that show business is going to cure all your personal ills. 
Yeah, I when when I went in when I first started thinking I want to be in show business, I thought uh once you're in show business, you don't get sick. No no one around you dies, you don't die, and everything's happy. Well, I don't think I ever thought that, especially growing up where I did. You know, if anything, I was prepared for the possibility and, and actual eventuality of having been on a series and then not working and how tough that that can be. Because I'd see those people when I was growing up. I'd see them walking around Westwood Village in Beverly Hills. So, and I also never really planned on being an actor. I just knew that I liked the work. Uh-huh. So I would write and perform stuff and, you know, to no end, really, just for the love of it. So I really had a lot of dumb luck, believe me, a lot of dumb luck. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, now I found this thing that I really love to do, which is animation voiceover. And I really feel like I've hit my stride and I don't, I have more confidence now. I have a lot of confidence when it comes to that form of work. As long you've as always been able to looking at me. You've always been able to do wonderful voices and wonderful characters. Thank you. So is, is that what you like about it, that you can do it on your own terms, that you're not on a set, you're not dealing with, with, uh, with gawkers, you're not... Well, you're, also, you're, you know... You're the in a controlled craft, environment. The real craft of acting is very intimate and demanding, and there has to be a willingness on your part to expose yourself. And I was never that way. And I think that's why I was attracted to very superficial, broad characters and the lightness of sketch work, mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be known. And I still am kind of like that. So that's why this form is, is so perfect for me. But, you know, you never really understand that when you're young and you think, well, I guess this is called acting. But then I realized I, I wasn't willing to do the things that most fundamentally most actors are required to do which is be exposed also you were thrown into the lion's den at such an early age it's not like you had time to to work your way up and, well, I didn't and, know and what develop I was. the craft yeah i did not know what i was that's the thing i mean and it, it's taken yeah. me a long time to figure out what it is that i do i love every form of work that i've ever done that's the thing i love the work it's just that I didn't really feel that I had a competitive edge. I didn't. I saw so many other people that I felt were so much more talented than I was, and that was again very distracting. I I remember like Truman Capote once said. He said like all actors are dumb, mm. and 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 he said he revised it to all good <clears throat> actors are dumb, and he said like. If someone's a great actor, they're not that smart in person. If they were, they wouldn't be able to open themselves up like that. Well, um, I think that that can be true, but certainly I wouldn't ascribe that to someone like Meryl Streep. I mean, she's highly intelligent, and there are a lot of actors that are incredibly intelligent. But I also think that there is a certain abandon and openness and truthfulness in actors that aren't that intelligent. So it can be an asset. That's interesting. Can you go back and watch? I, I know you're not happy with your work and let's say the movie Perfect and, mm. and, and certain other things that you've done. But as, as you say in the memoir, can you go back and watch some of the SNL sketches? And I guess you did for the book. 
Yeah, there are some and, that and enjoy, I think I did. And enjoy yourself? Yeah, there are some I think I was okay. Lena yeah. Vertmuller? Yeah, I love doing wonderful. Lena Vertmuller. Yeah, thank you, Rosie Schuster. Yes, yes, I loved doing that character. And uh, it was the kind of thing where it pleased me. I don't know how many other people it pleased, but I was happy because I liked it. Didn't you run and, into Smokey Robinson one day? And he... Yes, when there was the, <laughs> the um, there was the cast party for American Hot Wax at some country club in in Bel Air, and it was a huge party. You know, uh, all these movie stars were there, and um, yeah, Smokey Robinson came up to me and said, "I love your Lena Wertmuller." Uh, I thought, how random is that? I love that. <laughs> I love it. Bless him. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. Two difficult SNL episodes because of the hosts, Louise Lasser and Frank Zappa. Which one do you want to tackle quickly? Well, uh, hello. Um, (laughs) It's Louise Lasser on the line. Yeah, here's the one thing that it's hard to understand if you're not on the show. It's hard to know what went on on the show when you when you were working on it because mm-hmm. you were in a sketch you don't see what other stuff is happening now i know that she locked herself in her dressing room and um and wouldn't come out and we had never faced anything like that before i don't know what it took to get her out but i i knew that she also uh was heavily into cocaine but you know <laughs> i was too so um, I did no judgment there, although I never performed high. I, I don't know if she was high or not. Um, and, and, and then they said that um, for a while, I wish they had done it, that Chevy Chase was going to put on a Mary Hartman wig and do all of her sketches. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that being said. Yeah. Um, and Frank Zappa, you know that thing you say often, Gilbert, and I, I, whereas, you know, there's people that are kind of renowned assholes, but they were always nice to you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I hate that. that, but it's true. I mean, Frank Zappa <clears throat> was always nice to me. So, I, and I, you know, I, I saw later the sketches he did, and I realized that he was like winking at the camera, which was shitty. You know, it wasn't it wasn't great. I, I was kind of disappointed to see that he did that. But he was a real fan of the show. And I don't think that he thought what he was doing was wrong. You know, I just think that he was misguided. Uh, but I also was not aware he was doing that because I was in the sketch. Right. Or I was changing for another sketch. You said that to me on the phone that, you know, you look back and it's when you're in it, it's very hard to be aware of what's happening. Right. And if you're not aware of what's happening in the moment, then it's hard to retain it as a memory. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you were 23. You were you were like not even a decade removed from the 15-year-old, yeah. uh, y- you know, seeing your first improv show. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know everybody was young, but you were you were especially well, young. Danny's actually a month younger than I am. <laughs> but wow. Danny's a, Danny's a genius, so Wow. I, I don't even I stand in his shadow. Here, here's another question. For, uh, you can keep this one short. Uh, uh, Andrew Laposha, uh, does Lor- what is Lorraine's memories from Chevy's uh, ill-fated Friars roast? Oh dear God. Um, we can edit it out if you don't want to go there. Yeah, that was just so abysmal. 
um, <clears throat> it was his second roast. He had done another one. And so we're, we're in the press line and he has his arm around me and someone asks him, hey, uh, what's different about this one? You've been roasted before. And Chevy said, there are no stars here. <laughs> you know, not that I considered myself a star, but it's still kind of, you know, a little thoughtless. And, um, you know, I, I really thought that he knew that, you know, you roast the ones you love. Of course. But I didn't realize that what, what the Friars Roast had become, you know, and people like Kevin Meany getting up and doing stuff that hadn't, he didn't know Chevy. It had nothing to do with Chevy. And that's what I think went wrong with it, uh-huh. you know, and I don't blame him for being a little bit upset, but there were certainly people who did stuff that was really funny and was done out of love, but he was really pissed. And at the end, he just, like, you know, lambasted everybody and said, I only agreed to do this because they were donating money to my wife's charity. So I- we, we all felt good about that. I, I I was at that roast. Oh, that's Look, right. You yeah. were. And and I remember it's like I actually was fascinated when Chevy got up at the end because uh, they it's like you were waiting for him to do something funny and just uh, and he said something like a lot of what was said tonight I've thought of myself. Oh, he did. That's right. Well, how can, could it be any more brutal than that? Oh, yeah. Well, that whole show, aside from you and Paul Schaefer and Beverly, they didn't really know him. The people, Greg Giraldo and the comics that were assembled by Comedy Central didn't know the man. Yeah. So, so, so how do you do an affectionate roast if there's no, if there's no personal history? And, And Paul Schaefer started this show with a musical number called We Couldn't Get Anybody Good. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. <laughs> really funny. That. Really, really funny. Here's, some, here, here's one more question for you, Lorraine, and this is more a statement than a question from Eric Connor. I have to share a Lorraine Newman story. A few weeks before my mom passed away, unexpectedly, I sent her a cameo message from Lorraine. My mom was a humongous SNL fan, and uh, she let me watch it when I was way too young. Lorraine's message to my mom was so sweet and so kind, and I'm so glad she got to hear it before passing away. We played it at her memorial service. I'm sorry, it's not a funny story, but it's one I know she wouldn't promote on her own, and shows how cool she is beyond her career. Oh, God, I didn't know his mother passed away. I remember that one. Well, I uh, like doing cameo. It's it's, it's wonderful. Nice thing you I did. mean, I can only imagine what it, I would have done if they had it when I was a kid. Wow, you know, cameos. Yeah, yeah. Dave, great David thing. McCallum would have been. You would have been saving your lunch money. <laughs> he to would get have a made cameo. a bundle on me. <laughs> Gave David McCallum. Yeah. Yeah. I I find my career now is doing cameos. I can, I, Gilbert. I imagine you're in big demand. He's he's one of the you you're one of the top ten people on Cameo, aren't you, Gil? Yeah. Something like that. Who thought that would happen? Lorraine, before we let you out of here, oh, you got to talk a little bit about the Black Cat, or just oh, yeah. one or just one monster movie. I I think I'm like top three. He's in the top three. That's yeah. fantastic, Gilbert. All right, Gil, you got something to shoot for. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I well, think the the guy from The Office is number one, isn't he? The guy that Brian Baumgartner. Ricky Gervais, or no, or... the guy that plays Kevin on The Office. I heard he. I heard he was in the. Oh wow! I heard. By the oh, way, nice. uh, you were talking about John Engel, your professor. Yes. Turned up in an Office episode. He was. He uh, was. He was Dunder, one of the one of the co-founders of Dunder Mifflin. Oh the, my uh, God, that's of, fantastic! Of the paper company, I looked him up, and that boy, he did a ton of work. I know. I love that. that I love guy. the fact that he, you know, that horrible thing that people say that those who can do and those who can't teach, because. John Ingle went on to become a pretty successful actor after teaching drama at Beverly Hills High School. I don't know how how many years. And so he's many in everything. Great, yeah, so he's many great everything. people came out of that. Well, uh, you know, you love school. you have affection for these character actors as we do. These, yes. the, you know, that guy. You know, but, the, you know, those faces. The Black Cat. Most of my relatives talked the way Beli Lugosi talked ah. because they're Hungarian. <laughs> And I, I showed that movie recently to my daughter and her boyfriend. And the scene where he, ha, ha, at the end, where he's got Boris Karloff, you know, manacled and hanging. And he says, do you know what I'm going to do to you now? I'm going to skin you alive. And you see it in, in silhouette, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of like he's shaving his skin, <laughs> just peeling it away and hearing him scream. It's just, but the art direction in The Black Cat is just oh. magnificent. Oh, it's great. It's It's one of those movies that most of it makes no sense at all, but it hypnotizes you. Yeah, and then the comic relief of the two cops that come there. Mm -hmm. And one is is clearly Hungarian, but the other guy is Italian. He has this really heavy Italian accent, and it's like, I don't know why these people are saying that these things are going on here. I don't know. It's so stupid, you know. And uh, gee, that's out of place. And and when he's skinning uh, Karloff alive, he says, "Yo," he says, "You know what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to fare the skin from oh, your body." He meant flail. <laughs> and so you figure it was that's probably right. up between like tear. Yeah. And. <laughs> Uh, That's right, I forgot. Do we That's think right. Edgar Ulmer was in some way making a black comedy? Uh, when when Lugosi throws the pair of scissors at the off-screen cat, and you hear this, yeah! Well, he uh, surely paid dearly for that movie. He was blackballed, wasn't he? Uh, Edgar Ulmer. Yeah. He slept with, I'm trying to get the story right, he, ha- he, he had a, a sexual uh, a fling with somebody... Uh, somebody who was either the girlfriend of someone in the Universal Brass or someone's wife. Okay. And he got in a lot of trouble. Uh, but I heard or, that or at there least was... Universal put him in director's jail. Oh, but I heard there was so much uh, controversy over the movie itself because if you remember, he steals the guy's wife away from him. But they they also, I thought, no... Oh, the daughter. She's frozen. She's reserved. Yeah, they're frozen. Mm-hmm. But I thought that that was his daughter that he was sleeping with. But I guess it wasn't. Never mind. Look, look up Ulmer. Ignore and, me. And there's some kind of there's some kind of weird sex scandal that that uh, that got him in hot oh. water in hot water. And, and because you're a monster kid, did you hear our shows where we had Janet and Gallo, who passed last year? Yeah. The little girl from Ghost of Frankenstein. And Donnie Donegan. I'll send them to you, Lorraine. The improbable son of uh, Basil Rathbone. 
even though he had curly blonde hair and a southern <laughs> accent. Yes. Yeah, I he fact, was great. He, uh, he was on, I did a, a podcast called Go Fact Yourself. And, you know, the topic was universal horror movies. And I was competing with the guy who had won Jeopardy. Wow. And we were we had to do like extra questions because we were tied. And then the, the final question that I didn't get was what was the name of the actor that played Frank, you know, son of Frankenstein? Of course, no idea. But Donnie Dunnigan, still yeah. with us. I know, very, very uh, alive. That all guy. you have to say to Donnie is hello, and, <laughs> and he, and he yeah. does the rest of the interview. It's true. We weren't sure what we'd get out of him, and we wound up making two episodes out of him. Oh yeah, I mean, talking about meeting Walt Disney and. He, he's really oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah, that's right. Fellow. He's the voice of Bambi. And, and he was yes, in the voice World of War II. Yeah, he's decorated. You, that's speak, right. Speaking of horror films, uh, Gil, uh, a director that you like, Toby Hooper, became a good yes. friend of Lorraine's. Yes. The late, oh, great yeah. Toby Hooper. Yeah, there's there's a, a Toby story in there, too. Yeah, there's a Toby story. And also Phil Alden Robinson, uh, the great director of Field of Dreams. Yeah. Really close uh, friend. That we're gonna, funny, funny guy. Oh well, we're going to ask you to help us with that one. Okay. Uh, um, and, you know, sometime, Lorraine, just come on. The book is great, by the way. But sometime, come on and just talk about monster movies with us. I Just call anytime. I'd yeah. love to. And, and love we had to. the grandson of Lon Chaney Jr. Really? Wow. Yeah. You, you know Gilbert has a Lon Chaney Jr. obsession if you listen yes, to the show. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> And I talk in the book about how Henry Hull as the werewolf of London was yes. much sexier than Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> it's uh, Frankenstein is 90 years old this year. 1931, right? So do the math. Oh, the, the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. The original Frankenstein, Gilbert, ni- turn, n- turning 90 Jesus. this year. So maybe we'll do something about that. And, yeah. uh, and we'll get... You know, you. Uh, we talked about this on the phone, and it is true. You know, you are kind of a Zelig-like character as far as all of these pop cultural moments of the last uh, forty-five years. Well, uh, yes, longer half century now. Yeah. God, Christ, uh, SNL is forty-six. I know. I don't even. What did you think of Gilbert's year of SNL? <laughs> I have to admit that I did not see it. Lucky you. I didn't see it. So. He, he may have taken your old dressing room for all you know. Could be. You want to tell her, Gilbert, about the letter you found? Oh, my God. Uh, it, it was like, I remember uh, we found out they were firing uh, Gene Dominion. And then uh, uh, Dick Ebersole comes in. He says, oh, we're, you know, we're going to take a week off and then we're going to say how we'll be doing the show differently. And then everyone was waiting outside Ebersole's office being taken in one by one. Oh, and some would be happy, others would be crying. <laughs> oh, my God. No. And I didn't know what... I And I... There was a table where they used to put fan letters. And I picked one up that was addressed to me. And it was some girl in Idaho or whatever. And she says, Dear Gilbert, I'm so sorry about what happened to you. Oh, no. How did she know? So she knew I was fired before I did. Oh, my God. That's bad. 
That's no oh, fun. All right, you're going to be with our pal Alan's White Bell virtually on the 92nd Street Y, March yes, 11th, March says 11th. Jeff Abraham. We do everything Jeff Abraham tells us to do. Excellent. Uh, the book is uh, May You Live in Interesting Times. It's fantastic. It's the story of comedy in the last 50 years, the story of Los Angeles in the last 50 years, your personal journey, great SNL backstage stories. It's the story of uh, depression and addiction and rediscovery, as you call it's it. It's lots of laughs, everybody. And lots of laughs. <laughs> and uh, I, I cannot recommend it enough. And we want to thank Jeff Abraham, too. Uh, yes, and, thank you. And just for you, Lorraine, because you're a monster kid, maybe Gilbert will be nice enough to take you out uh, or, or sign off and say goodbye to you as Maria Uspenskaya from The Wolfman. We could do it together. Uh, okay. Oh, well, ha well, Aristotle, you'll have to sync this up. Okay, here we go. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers that night may become, become a, wolf a wolf when the wolf, wolf bane blooms. blooms. And, the moon <laughs> and the autumn moon is, is bright. bright. <laughs> and you know something? They changed the poem for later Wolfman movies. Oh, they did? Because... Because uh, it was always the full moon was out every night. Oh, and, you know, they, <laughs> they right. couldn't do a movie where, oh, there's no full moon tonight. Yeah, that makes so, no sense. Yeah. So that they make changed any sense, it. Like someone turning into a werewolf. <laughs> to like when the moon is full and bright. Oh, oh my God. And well, I well, always thought with those Wolfman pictures. Uh, you know, when he said, I become a, a werewolf when the moon's full, I think so. Okay, so what's that, five times a year? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Big deal. Yeah. Buck up, mister. What does Luke Costello say? You and 40 million other guys. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Lorraine, the book is wonderful. I know Thank it you. took you years to write it and even to attempt it. Thank you. And I'm so glad you did. And it, it is a wonderful ride. Thanks so and much. And our, our listeners will eat it up because uh, you're you are uh, that that's cat that's those stories are just going to be catnip for them. Fantastic! Uh, Thanks for having me on, guys. I really I love the show so much. You, know you are you are very kind to say that. Give and our love. He, give our love to Zwei Bell. He who gets bitten by a werewolf and leaves becomes a werewolf himself. That's good, but she said wolf. Yeah, wolf. <laughs> a werewolf. And with a P. With a P. And the table I wish to God I could have been sitting at, I, I, I was speaking to Chico Marx's daughter, and uh, she said that, you know, she was being, she went to Maria Spinskaya's acting school. Oh, my God. And so... She and Chico Marx went out to dinner together. And I thought, this boy Wait, to Maria have been at that and Chico? table. Yeah. Oh, God. I Just, my God. An Algonquin event. Had you, <clears throat> yes. had you been, been th born 30 years earlier, Lorraine, you could have attended Maria Uspenskaya's acting school. Oh, God, that would have been awesome. <laughs> 
Gil, you want to sign off and let this lady go make dinner for her family? Oh, okay. <laughs> Lorraine, thank you for doing this again. And thank Thanks, you for you all guys. the kind words you've, you've said about the show and all the promotion you've done on Twitter, and it means a lot to us. It's thank my pleasure. You, Bless your heart. Okay, guys. And um, so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And our uh, guest tonight, I'm currently working on Problem Child 17. (laughs) (laughs) Via cameo. Yes. (laughs) And uh, the great Lorraine Newman. Lorraine, you're the best. Get the book, everybody. Thanks, you guys. Right back after this word from the folks who chew gum for a living. <laughs> <laughs>